Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual prizes, as well as discussions with book lovers from across the country. My guest for today's episode is Valerie Mason-John. Valerie's book, I Am Still Your Negro, an homage to James Baldwin, was a finalist for the 2021 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. In my conversation with Valerie, you'll hear them read from the collection, and I always love hearing authors read from their work, but Valerie's poems really come to life as they read them. I Am Still Your Negro includes voices and narratives from the beginnings of the African diaspora and includes sexism and racism in Trump's America, as well as the impact of the Me Too movement. As the description for the book says, I Am Still Your Negro is truth that needs to be told, retold, and remembered. Valerie is going to introduce themselves, and then they'll read from I Am Still Your Negro. My name is Valerie Mason-John. My pen name is Valerie Mason-John and my Buddhist name is Vimala Sara and I'm the author, editor of 10 books. In terms of poetry, I, I think the first collection I edited was working in prison as a writer-in-residence and I edited a collection of um, women's poetry who were in prison. And then when I moved to Canada, I really, it was really important for me to understand the experience of African Canadians. In fact, in a way, African Canadians was was new to me, because you know about the African Americans and the black British, but I knew very little about the African Canadians. I was aware that there were indigenous people here, but not African Canadians. And that opened up a whole new world to me. It was, it was, it was amazing. Just what firstly, just seeing how I, as a Sierra Leonean, uh, is connected to Canada, to the Nova Scotian area, where, as we know that many, um, Thomas Peters was one of the people who led many of the loyalists back to Sierra Leone, um, where was Freetown was founded. And my people are from Sierra Leone, Freetown, and we are of enslaved stock. And so I, one of the ways of really researching the experience of African Canadians, I thought, well, let me see what poetry books are out there. (laughs) And there were very few and far between and I thought, oh, is there a national anthology? And and I had edited the, in fact, I think the first two books I ever wrote, uh, well, the second book I ever wrote was an edited anthology. I, I wrote the first two books to document the lives of African and Asian lesbians in Britain. I co-wrote the first book and edited the second book. So editing anthologies wasn't new to me. And so I worked with Kevan Cameron and I believe that Kevan and I produced a very beautiful book, The Great Black North. Yeah, um, The Great Black North Contemporary African-Canadian Poet. I think that's what it's called. Anyway, The Great Black North. 
So that really opened up the world for me. And then I worked with Dr. Afua Cooper producing BlackHalifax.com, which are 10 poetic stories dating back to the 1700s about the, the black experience of Canadians in Canada. So that's a bit of an introduction to me. And then kind of coming here to the present day, we have my new book, I'm Still Your Negro, uh, a homage to James Baldwin, that came out last year. Yeah, I'll start with Cinder's time. Stones at my window to tell me it's Cinderella time, midnight. My princess charming waiting beneath my window for me to shimmy down the drainpipe, tiptoe across the floorboards to my window and I give the signal. I flash my cell phone. Five minutes and I'll be ready. Stuff my bed with an old blanket just in case mum or dad are paranoid and do a routine check on their only daughter. Drag on my baggiest jeans, t-shirt and dancing shoes. Age my face for the night ahead and down the drainpipe I slide. Stars are bright tonight. My princess charming shining like the big dipper in the sky. My first night out at a rave. I'm 25, borrowed another 10 years for the event. My princess has nicked her brother's mountain bike. No chariot tonight, just a hard battered saddle. Legs almost dead by the time we reach the steamy gateway to escape from Samsara. Warm gusts gladly greet us as we join a lineup of juvenile delinquents and ageing hippies. It's 2am. I've been struck by lightning. Great balls of fire. Flashing missiles. Thumping beats make me giddy. I've finally made it into the cavernous hole of heaven and hell. And all I want is water, a toilet, some air. But my princess is in charge. She shits, She sits me down in a corner, perched on top of a mountainous range of handbags, coats, shirts. She cavorts around me, whips me into a frenzy, fans me with her shirt, splashes me with her water bottle. I'm up like a jack in a box. I'm a jumping jack, somersaulting between sticky bodies. I subscribe to the aerobic chemistry, manically bonding with the frenzied crowd crammed in around me. This is techno, my princess charming screams. Tribal, progression, garage, trance, chaos, freak out. I let go of my inhibitions, hang on to her lyrics, let myself be hypnotised by the DJ's pumping beats, appreciate the miseducation while secretly wishing that she would notice I'm exhausted and all I really want to do is go back home to my warm, cosy, respectable bed, curl up with my Winnie the Pooh hot water bottle and dance away in Noddy Land where it's peaceful, safe, still. Peaceful, safe, still. Yellowknife. This poem is based on the first lesbian sexual assault case to be tried in Canada. In 1955, a white woman, Laura, took Willemai Moore, an African-American woman, to court for gross indecency in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. Miss Moore was found guilty. She and her white Canadian companion, Beatrice Gonzalez, left town shortly after the prosecution. Even though Moore subsequently appealed the decision and won, her name was tarnished forever. Yellowknife. When it was a mere 20 below, I'd think, boy, this is a great day. I can push back my Parker hood. 
I was used to New York winters. This was nothing. 1953 Yellowknife. In love with Beatrice Gonzalez. Followed her home to her native Canada. Found work in a government office typing pool. Some of us slept on a floor when it was too cold to go home. We'd fall asleep exchanging stories of our past. Some women made it clear to me my type of life was quite foreign. They had absolutely no interest in me. I made it clear I was not desperate. That would be foolish. Beatrice was a professional woman of good standing, vice principal. I was content with my comfortable life. Now you see, had I been a man, I could have got away with touching a woman's cleavage, lifting her petticoat up, even rubbing against her genitals. If the woman tried to press charges, she would be told she had encouraged it, asked What was she doing alone in a room with a man who wasn't her husband? Told she must have made advances. An attempted kiss would have been considered trifling. Nothing to write home about. Headline read, First same-sex lesbian sexual assault prosecution. Branded a freak of nature. The public needed to be protected. Yellow knives were out to get me. Gross indecency was my crime. Nobody asked me any questions. Guilty on a white woman's evidence alone. In court, Laura claimed that she looked up at me from her desk. I was supposed to have looked strangely at her, a rather concentrated look indeed. She claimed to look down. She said, I grabbed hold of her, tried to kiss her. As she pushed me away, I was to have said, you're very cruel, and she began to cry. Of course I looked at her, even undressed her with my eyes, and she undressed me too. Exotic, she whispered, in the next breath spat out, you beast. She locked eyes with me, our lips brushed, and she cried. No, stop, I can't, I'm not strange like you. I was the first woman arrested and tried in a Canadian court, gross indecency against another woman. I was yellow-knifed, I was black, guilt. I'll read... One more. Sticks and stones. Sticks and stones did break my bones, and words did always hurt me. My white mother told me never to moan. She was old and cold as stone. I was young and as scared as she. Sticks and stones did break my bones. I had no friends, so played alone. I hated myself for being adoptee. My white mother told me never to moan. A white child broke my jawbone. He pulled me down onto my knees. Sticks and stones did break my bones. One day I was found crying on my own. White children came over and pissed on me. My white mother told me never to moan. When there was blood on the curbstone, my white mother tried to protect me. Sticks and stones did break my bones, but still she told me never to moan. Thank you. Mm. I mean, I have so many things I want to talk to you about about this book, um, Valerie, but just in your introduction, you pointed to something that has come up uh, before as I've talked to authors about their books. Chantel Gibson last year when her and I spoke about her book, it was it was kind of writing into the absence of black authors, black writing, black history in Canada, because I mean, I grew up here. I I sat in history classes as a young girl, and 
we didn't talk about black history in Canada. And so just as you found there was nothing when you went to the books, there has long been, I mean, and there has been, but we just aren't talking about it. And I wondered if you could talk about writing into that absence, Mm. into that erasure in what Mm. you do. Yeah, we mustn't be surprised that there's an absence of the black voice or the African descent voice in Canada, because if there's an absence of the indigenous voice in Canada. So, you know, that's a reality. And and, um, because there's an absence of the indigenous voice, the First Nations voice, the the Métis, the Inuit voice, then why would people be concerned about the, the black voice? And what's really important is as African Canadians, we have to keep on writing our voice because we've got to point there are those woke people who are beginning to see, yes, we need to teach people our Indigenous history. I need to learn myself the Indigenous history of Canada. And as soon as we start talking about black history, people close down. You, you know, it's why is that relevant? You know, the only thing that is relevant is Indigenous history. And, and what I would say is, is that actually it's very hard to to separate indigenous history from from black history you know i we we know that one of the first um black people to come to canada was de costa you know who was a translator he was a translator in the fur trade between indigenous people and the white colonizers we also know that actually during that underground railroad and before then people uh, enslaved Africans would have escaped into Canada and would have married into indigenous people you know and we also know that indigenous people hid some enslaved people and also I think that our our experience is, is, is very different those who, who came in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s they didn't come because they chose to come or were colonized. They were brought here, yeah, and they were they were brought here as indentured servants, as as enslaved people, and as um, free loyalists. Would you know basically as a loyalist? If you didn't get out of the states and come to Canada, then you would be dead. So you didn't really have have much of a choice. So I'd say that. Um, our history is 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 enmeshed, and also because we have we have a similar experience. It's not the same experience because we, whereas Indigenous people were were and still are colonized on their own lands and their lands taken, we were taken from our lands and dumped somewhere else. Yeah, so it's it's really important for us to to make our voice visible so that people begin to wake up and listen to us because the the issue we have megan is is that when the great black north came out and we wanted it we wanted it to to be on the reading list and get into the education system kevan and i were met with take it to nova scotia that's where they want it so so it's almost as if Okay, you know, if we admit that there is some black history, we can only admit that it took place in Nova Scotia. And if we're lucky, maybe in Toronto, and that's it. 
And the reality is, is, is that Nova Scotia is saturated by a lot of um, black literature. Yeah. The rest of Canada, forget it. You know, the rest of Canada. So really, the, the rest of Canada and the education system needs to wake up. I mean, the Great Black North won, the, it won two awards and one of them was the best education was the best educational book in Alberta, the best poetry book in Alberta. Did it get into the education system? Absolutely no. And it's really interesting with I'm Still Your Negro, I, I'm actually doing a presentation for um, somebody, it's a, it's a university, I think, in, in Toronto, and it's a I, it's somebody black who reached out who's put it onto the reading list so again we really need those black professors those black teachers in positions of responsibility to get our books in because white professors and white teachers here in Canada just don't have the same interest at least in in the US that people that white professors not all but they're white professors who do have an interest in our work and and are bringing our work into the education system into the university system so there's something that needs to happen for our, our voice to be heard and I always have to preface this that actually how much indigenous work is recognized in the education system in the university systems it's interesting because you, we speak to you. We're mentioning Nova Scotia and how you know it seems like that that part of Canadian Black history seems to be acceptable for whatever reason, or that's the part that we hear about. Mm. But even in your book and in as you read, you re wrote about Yellowknife, mm. and you know the, these are parts of our history that mm. aren't explored. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that piece in particular and. And how you stumbled upon that story and what drew you to it? Sure. Yeah, let's go back because one of the things that isn't acceptable, isn't accepted, is just knowing that Canada had slave auctions. Yeah, and not a lot of people are aware of that. Yeah, there were actual slave auctions on unceded territory. There were slave auctions. Yeah. And what drew me to this 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 story? In fact, I have to thank um, Kathy Fisher, actually Kathy, who's who's a writer, poet writer, and based in Alberta, who who is uh, also a lawyer. And I was, I think I was, I was just doing some research, and she gave me the book which Constant Barnes had written. And the book that Constant Barnes had written, I'm trying to think the name of the book, but it was it was Carnal Crimes, I think something like Carnal Crimes. And this crime had was was in Constant's book. And Kathy said, Oh, you should look at this, this is really interesting. And I did find it really interesting, the, the court case, and so I decided to do some research. I decided to do some research. And went to Yellowknife and actually interviewed some people who who had actually knew the case. There are people still alive who knew that case. So I actually wrote the this poem. It's, again, it's an interesting conversation. How do we write poems? And this poem was definitely written from research. And so research and fiction. You know, I fictionalized it. And there is. Um, 
and all right and for cooper actually bringing an, an anthology out of bc writing and i have written an extended piece on that actually filling it out i've written an extended piece on that by doing more research and looking at what was what was vancouver like at that time and yeah so that's what drew me to it i just thought wow this is fascinating like the first same sex trial was with a black woman and um, and what was willa what was willa willa my more doing in canada and her partner is even more interesting beatrice gonzalez you know who who had helped jewish people flee in austria so she she was a very interesting character so that's what drew me to that story i just thought this is a, this is an important part of canadian history black canadian history and queer history and black queer history I feel like I, I have to ask you about about James Baldwin, of course, because his name is in the title and his his words are also woven with your words in this collection. And I actually sat down and watched the documentary, too, before I as I was reading the book. And I found some interesting parallels. One of them was that the the urgency that I felt in your collection. And it was interesting because it also, it, it felt similar to watching the documentary because there's this interesting push and pull of past and present. And of course he speaks to this in James Baldwin's work speaks to that as well. And, and I wanted to ask how you first uh, became connected to James Baldwin's work and how that movie then connected to this collection. You know, it's thank you for saying that. That's quite a, a big accolade, and and I think for me that I wanted to continue the the negritude movement. You know, as James was very much part of that negritude movement, which which came out of France. In fact, actually, the, the movement actually grew grew out of black uh, thinkers, black academics who who really wanted to to talk about the the racism and the oppression that we have experienced i would say that um as a, an african descent person if you are in circles of black academics and you're in circles of black thinkers you're going to come across james baldwin because james baldwin is is one of our heroes i mean we we stand on james's shoulder and also because of that queer connection as well James was 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 queer would would come under the banner queer and so in a way he yeah we why wouldn't you look to look to James who was talking about our experience so in a way I knew about James before even reading James you know it, it's it's and and it was fantastic when there was a renaissance of James James's work and the, especially in Vancouver, they were showing his film "I'm Not Your Negro," and and I think it was actually uh, if Bill Street could talk that really did it for me. It was almost like then I just thought nothing has changed really. That actually, what James is writing about is still happening now. Yeah, and that was and I just this this surge i just 
it was just so strong just thinking this is this is crazy this this stuff is still happening and so in a way playing with yeah i'm i'm still your negro on it. and you know as one of the poems i'm still your negro i'm not your negro but in a, in a sense it's it's like yeah so for me this is i couldn't it's it's about also this cultural appropriation that i had to I had to credit James, you know. It's very easy to write this this stuff and, and not credit people, but it was really important for me to credit James because he was definitely the inspiration of this of this work. And I can remember it it, it must have been the first time that Trump got in because I wrote some of these poems over a, a, a period of time and it was I just remember waking up almost every day and and reading or hearing on the news another black person had been killed by the police, whether it was in America or whether it was in England. Yeah. And of course, you know, it, it happens in Canada too. And I was just like, it was just so overwhelming, just so, so painful. Yeah. And what I also want to say about the book as well, I think where James um, has really inspired me because, you know, you could say James was a poet. It, I, there's many aphorisms. I use some of the aphorisms in in the book, and in a way that really pushed me as well to think about how did I how did I w- want to put this collection together? And as you know, there is a narrator, and it's an ancestor. It's an ancestor speaking through because I think our ancestors speak through all of us. There was an ancestor speaking through James Baldwin, whatever. Whatever we do, whatever people produce, it's ancestors speaking for us. It's never just our own work. But also, I really um, wanted to turn some of this work on its head and mess around with poetic forms, like using the villanelle and having fun with the villanelle, and especially the sonnet uh, form, where normally the sonnet is something about something so beautiful. But yet having that that sonnet, but actually writing about something which is really dark. And in a way, it's a bit of a double entendre in in a way, because as we know, when we start looking at abuse or sexual abuse on the outside, it looks so beautiful and everything looks as if everything's all okay. But actually, when you look beneath it, it isn't all okay. And that's what I was working with, with the sonnet and some of the poetic forms. And as you know, there's a, a poem in there which is uh, done in more couplet form, The Perfect Road. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the more, I guess, more of the construction of the, of the collection, because I was really interested in you using those traditional uh, poetic forms in this book because I write nonfiction and we learn we learn about the the hermit crab essay, which is often used as a means to tackle dark and challenging subjects. It allows us to access those things through like a familiar form, and I thought that was interesting for you because it felt like you were doing that with the sonnet in a way using this thing that is familiar but allowing us to connect with something else um and i would just love to hear about how 
you know, I can tell you're a very oral storyteller too, and how you read these poems is, is such a different experience, but how you navigated which form to use for the pieces as you were working on it. Yeah, I think it, it just comes to you, really. It's like you do several rewrites, and it, it's, I think um, that there was a part of me which thought, okay, I want to write in this form, but I wasn't sure what I was going to write. And and it's interesting because as you were speaking, I was thinking of Moonlight, the Oscar-winning film Moonlight, about the the love of, of black gay men in the ghetto. It's kind of based in a ghetto. And what was it that, what, what was so interesting when you watch Moonlight is the, the, the music score is so classical and so beautiful. I don't know whether you've seen it, um, but yeah. yeah, the music is just so beautiful. It's like, wow, I have it juxt the juxtaposition of this traditional what we'd say traditional white music with this whole black ghetto life. So it isn't just the black ghetto life, but then also the queerness in it. And in a way, I think there was a part of me playing with that, you know, playing with the, the beauty of the sonnet so that you can get through it. There's something, there's also something about the poet, when you work within a poetic form, you have to be really minimal and to the point of what it is that you want to be saying. And so it was a great container to use the poetic form, to use the villanelle, to use the sonnet, and also to use the couplet to talk about um, domestic abuse, to talk about sexual abuse, to talk about racial trauma. And what's great is is that for me there is the the poem on the page. I mean, I, I there's one. Let me just uh, the. There's there's one that I will will do, which is a sonnet. But then when one um, performs it, uh, it becomes something different because you can play with it, and also it, it it changes. And I I haven't because it's so new and I've been so so busy. I haven't actually got all these poems in my head at the moment. I like to have them. You know, you kind of live them, breathe them. Um, but I'm going to do this, this, this poem. It's called, uh, Another One Bites the Dust. As you say, but you might not know, so writing it on the page in sonnet form, if I, if it had just been a free form poet, I may have written so much and it may have just been too much. You know, sometimes it can be too much, you know, in, in one of the poems I do let rip in Me Too, where it, 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 it just goes on and on and on and I enjoy it going on and on and on and it deserves to go on and on and on but sometimes it's about reining it in another one bites the dust strobed red and blue crazed and flooded by police light she cradles her 18 year old son stiffening on her breast another one bites the dust another one bites the dust and another one gone and another one gone and another one bites the dust Murdered by cops in a gunfight, resisting wrongful arrest. Another one bites the dust, and another one gone, and another one gone, another one bites the dust. She wells, my son is dead, not even old enough to graduate. Another one bites the dust, another one bites the dust, and another one gone, and another one gone, and another one bites the dust. Smothered, covered 
in his bloodshed, killed by fear and senseless hate. Another one bites the dust, another one bites the dust, and another one gone, and another one gone, another one bites the dust. Collapses and uncontrollably blubbers, cradling, soothing, screaming, lifeless. Another one bites the dust, another one bites the dust, and another one gone, and another one gone, another one bites the dust. Who cares? Just another black body dead in the gutter. One more death, corrupt and senseless. Another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust. And another one gone. And another one gone. Another one bites the dust. Thank you. Yeah, it's it, it's a totally different experience to to read to hear you read it than to see it on the page. And to, you know, I'm familiar with the song that, of course, that's riffing off of. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted, you were saying about that normally you have the poems uh, memorized a little bit mm. more and, mm. and that they, you live them and breathe them. And I, I wondered how you, um, because these are poems that are either deeply personal for you. They are, they translate your own personal experiences of addiction and violence. And mm -hmm. do you, do, is writing a part of the healing process for you or how is it to, to work through not only your, your own trauma and your own experiences, mm -hmm. but also in your communities um, mm -hmm. to translate those on the page? Yeah, I would say that the, the themes are universal. They're my stories, but not my stories. It's the, the stories of uh, of of all of us. I mean, that I everybody could connect to to something here on the page. Yes, it is cathartic. I think there is something quite cathartic writing. When I think of what's happened in. Afghanistan. I was thinking, you know, if if I'd run won the Dorothy Livesey Prize and 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 you get you get some money, and I was thinking, well, what would I do with that money? And I was thinking, I'd love to give half of that money to um, a poet from Afghanistan. And the reason why is it's just knowing that actually that writing can just be so healing. And then after the Afghan, well, I think before, I can't remember which one came first, or to an indigenous writer to, to write poetry around the unmarked graves, you know, because there is something I know that my healing, part of my healing has been through writing. And so I'm privileged. I, I'm fortunate because some people don't have the don't have the time or don't have the space don't have the privilege to be able to to write and to be published but even if you're not there's stuff that I've written that hasn't been published and and that's cathartic too it's it it's so healing I mean that this is why the is it Julia Cameron's book or the artist way has been so successful for many many years the morning pages so I think for me there's something about playing as well that I play with the written word. I mean, my 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 novel, which won several awards many many moons ago, that was really cathartic. I even put myself in therapy to write that. Yeah, you know, I called it fictional memoir. But what I did was is change all the names and all the characters, and was able to to play in that. And I think sometimes we can we can write 
perhaps what we wouldn't say or, or what perhaps we wanted to happen or didn't happen. We can we can rewrite our stories. So definitely it is a cathartic process. It's a therapeutic process. And writing is, is one of the ways that I've healed. It's, it's to let go of the stories because often people are carrying these stories which like a truckload of dung, you know, carrying these stories and these stories weigh us down. And how can we let go of these stories? It's so important, the healing, to let go of the stories. Of course, writing is one way. People can let go of stories in many other ways. I'd say through my Buddhist practice as a Buddhist teacher, I've let go of many, many stories. Thanks to Valerie for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you want to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, please visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we share news about the winners and finalists, as well as information about upcoming events. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Melanie Seabird. Melanie's book, Heads Up, Changing Minds on Mental Health, was a finalist for the 2021 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.